there, and welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Welcome, people. It's the 1% Better Podcast back for another show. And thanks for coming back. So this episode, I am recording again the intro a little bit early. Uh, Last week was because of the fantastic Coldplay gig. And this week is because of a stag in Galway. So both were and are expected to leave me in a bit of a mess on uh, Sunday or Monday. So I said I'd get the intros recorded in advance. And hopefully uh, that will be a good idea. Uh, I was just thinking, coming up to episode 30, I think this is number 26, number 30 is not far away, so I'm planning to do a little bit of a different episode where I am going to reflect, I guess, on the 30 or 29 episodes that I would have released and maybe talk about some of the things I took away. And I'd also love... If I got some questions in from listeners that they would like to put to me that I could answer on the show um, from listening to other similar podcasts where they do a kind of a Q&A, they call them Ask Me Anything. So you can ask me anything, ask me something. So you can do an AMA or an AMS or something to that uh, effect. So I'd look forward to seeing any questions that might come in. It'll be... uh, Cool to see what uh, is on your mind, what you'd like to know, if anything. So finally, this episode is with uh, John Wall. So John is uh, an entrepreneur. He called himself a moderately successful entrepreneur. I think he was being very modest there. I met John a few years ago and we stayed in touch. I actually then had him speak at a project management event uh, only last year and was uh, very interested in his story, his journey and uh, thought he'd be a really good guest for the show. He was one of the first I actually recorded, and uh, I'm only getting around to putting it out now, but as I assured John, I was waiting on purpose till listeners had uh, increased so that more people could hear his uh, very interesting uh, life story and lots of lessons that he's picked up along the way. He's an entrepreneur, I suppose, in the more recent part of his career but as he was growing up went to university in Cork and then he took a job after that with a company called Kent's which allowed him to travel he learned a lot during the years with them he was in Kuwait he was in Luxembourg he was in London and he talks about certain things that stick out in his memory as we went through his story that uh, he wanted to share and felt people could get something from this episode is by far the longest one I've done so I decided to break it into two parts, uh, part one and part two, hence the two-parter. And obviously, I'm going to release part one first, uh, keep it to about an hour and ten minutes, and we'll talk mostly about John's early life, his early career, and uh, the lessons he's picked up during that. So I hope that has whetted your appetite and that you enjoy part one with John Wall. Thanks, folks. All right, so this is uh, one of our first episodes of what I'm loosely calling 1% Better, and I am delighted to uh, introduce John Wall to uh, to this one. So, John, thank you for agreeing to come on the show, talk about your, your career, and hopefully leave out some nuggets of information and knowledge that will uh, 
make people that one percent better at the end. Very good. Uh, thank you for having me. One uh, percent is probably ambitious with me, but anyway, yeah, let's well, give look, it a go. Well, let's try. Let's try. So, um, so John, I, I met you, I guess, a few years ago through IT at Cork, um, yeah. and uh, got to know you a little bit there. I think it'd be great to start off the show by talking a little bit about the early years of, of John Wall. Um, maybe where you know where you're originally from, what your kind of early interests were and maybe what you wanted to be when you became the uh, the gentleman that you are now or as you grew up perhaps sure um, so I um, <clears throat> in my 50s at this stage I grew up in Templemore when my father was a, was a guard he, he well I was actually born in Dublin but we moved to Templemore when I was quite young three or that kind of a way he was one of the early people that moved to the the, tra- the guard training centre my, my parents were from West Cork, so I'd have a big connection back there <clears throat> around Skibbereen. But um, I grew up in Templemore and really, you know, grew up, um, I remember very little about Dublin, but grew up in Templemore, went to school there. It was, you know, a fairly typical, moderately sized town in, in rural Ireland at the time. Um, a bit different because there was a lot of guards around and it, I suppose, changed the shape of the town a small bit. But... Uh, had a you know pretty I was very lucky in the home I grew up in a very loving environment I was the second of seven um, I was fortunate that I was you know good at school good at maths and science and that type of thing all the way up along and I was you know reasonably accomplished um, at sport as well particularly GAA a bit of soccer um, I was you know a lot of privilege as a kid sent to piano and all that kind of thing so you know I had a, had a, had a, had a very you know I'd always be very uh, grateful for the good fortune I had for the family I grew up in uh, when I got to secondary school I suppose maths and science would have been pretty obviously what I was strong at and so at some point I wanted to be <laughs> I wanted to be a, a marine biologist because I was I was I was very interested in the natural world. Um, you can see in my office there. I've got you know fly tying material mm. uh, that I probably shouldn't have in my office. But anyways, I like to fish. Uh, I like fishing rivers and uh, and off the shore at sea, um, off the rocks and, and and whatnot. And so I had a notion of being um, a marine biologist for a time, but then. I, I, you know, I, I used to play around with electronics. I remember making a um, a crystal radio. If you know, you're probably too young to crystal know what a crystal radio is. Please, please elaborate on that one. A crystal radio was a very crude uh, shortwave radio uh, that involved. Uh, I, I, you're testing my memory of the electronics now, but there was. I remember there was a diode and a piece of crystal and. Uh, condenser as a, a, a variable condenser and an earpiece and a big aerial that went up on the roof and a big long earth that went somewhere somewhere into the ground and mm. I had a friend who was into radio and stuff and um, and he introduced me and I, I made one and I was very excited to hear you know Radio Moscow in mm. my upstairs bedroom in Templemore as a, I don't know, 14 or 13 or 14 year old. So, I, you know, I, I used to, you know, fix the Christmas lights every year and f- 
that was back in the day when you fixed things so when the hoover would break I'd disassemble it and clean up mm. the carbon brushes and put it back together again or the, the mixer for my you know the food mixer for my mother stuff like that I built stuff my father was uh, I, I, I'd say would have been a very good carpenter if that's what he had he had gone to I kind of asked felt he had a bit of a an, an engineering kind of a uh, instinct for engineering in him and my mother was good at maths so you know not surprisingly I went on to to do an I went eventually and did an engineering degree in UCC it was, was never a a draw towards the guards being no, living in Templemore no, in those early never. years no even though the funny thing is my grandfather was also a guard my grandfather was one of the very first guards in the he was he was what you know you'd want to be uh, an older generation to understand what a bry harrier was but he was one of that group of ex-IRA officers who were recruited into the guards in the early 30s by Ned Bry, who was the commissioner brought in by uh, De Valera when he took power and he would have been, you know, fought on the Republican side in the Civil War. And, you know, I often think of him, whenever I drive past the Curra these days on the motorway, you can see the the kind of watchtower and he was interned in the Curra after the Civil War and like an awful lot of Republicans, the great tradition in Republicanism was was education when they were incarcerated, and he was one of the people that benefited from that. And you know, I often think of the the privation that Irish people of his generation had compared to, say, all of his grandchildren. Pretty much all of us are university educated, which is you know quite a mm. quite a turnaround. And he he wouldn't have seen out um, primary school at the time because it just from a very impoverished background mm. and the privilege that it was back then to be literate even let alone to be um, secondary school educated but so no, I know there was never any draw my, my father probably discouraged us to be fair uh, probably would have been frustrated enough in the profession because it was very up and down and very uh, up and down the numbers would go up and down depending on who was in power mm. and there was a lot of promotion based on seniority rather than particularly ability, which he would have seen. Even though he, you know, he, he, he I suppose he did reasonably well himself mm. over the years, but um, mostly he taught in the in the training centre in in Templemore. But none of us joined the guards. All seven of us moved on to different professions: engineering and science and medicine and in banking and. Even in those areas, obviously, your mum and dad were a big influence. Was there any other major influences that you can remember from those years when you were growing up? Um, Be it in Templemore or even, you know, outside yeah, of Yeah, I had, uh, you know, I, I suppose I have to give the shout-out to the nuns, the Sisters of Mercy, uh, mm. as uh, one of Leonard Co- the late lamented Leonard Cohen songs, but I know he was t- talking about that particular order, but... They were in Templemore and they were great women. Uh, I used to go to them to learn the piano, and they were very demand, very high standards. Actually, they were they get a, they're very much maligned group, you know. But um, they had something about them. I always felt I had I was very lucky that my next door neighbour, uh, he passed away far too too early in his life. Joe McLean. He used to run the triplex factory in Templemore. He was the only engineer I knew, and he was a great mentor to me he was a mechanical engineer um and he was a great mentor to me and a great 
uh, advisor to me when I was going through different sort of questions and times and inflection points in my career. So he would have definitely been somebody I was very grateful to over the years. I suppose, look, at you know, like anybody, I, there were some great teachers and some not-so-great teachers, but I don't remember any particular standout uh, people, but I, I think a lot of that was because I, I came from such a, you know, a home where the books were important and, you know, both my parents had a had a, an expectation that we would... You know, we were reasonably bright as a family, as, you know, conceited as that might sound, but we were, you know... Um, encouraged from a very early age to take the book seriously and certainly uh, I think I suppose my parents definitely well I don't suppose my parents were definitely the biggest influence on me mm-hmm. in that regard Joe McLean definitely my neighbour uh, was 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 very good to me as well so were, yes. you, uh, were you a bit of a messer at all in those years? Or you were very Not really, no. I'd have been shy enough as a kid. Uh, I mean, I was a bit of a messer at school. I, I you know, I remember uh, I was actually suspended at some point for messing. That would equal a bit of messing. When we were in, we in intercert as it was at the time, myself and four others of us were dramatically hauled out one day and told to go home Um for acting the goal in class and I, to be fair it was probably merited uh, I mean to felt that when I was heading home to my mammy and daddy to tell them but um, and it was leaving third year was it? no interest oh interest okay, okay, okay. it was a minor skirmish you know but uh, not really I mean I did a bit of messing I suppose look I like everybody who was 14 or 15, I mean, I, I think everybody should have probably been sent home that day. That the only uh, injustice was that everybody, bar maybe two in the class, weren't sent home. But um, uh, look, I mean, you mature through your early teens and you grow from being, you know, a very quiet kid in, in, um, in primary school to, you know, starting to throw your shoulders out a small bit. And I, I suppose I did my share of that. But I was, you know, I was, you know, a fairly straight-laced kid. Um, I had, I was, you know, reasonably, reasonably good um, hurler and footballer. So that was a, you know, good outlet for me. I mean, you know, I learned a lot from that. And, you know, I was on the fringes of county teams and, you know, played as a minor footballer with Tipperary, not very long or particularly well, but, you know, I, I kind of reached that standard. And so... What success levels were Tipperary football? In those different, days? yeah, different. different. So I have a great... Um, I, have, I have a grow for Tipperary football right. because of because of that and how kind of much the poor relation we were back then. But it's great to see them doing well now. Mm. I was... With a friend of mine at the All Ireland semi final last year at the football at both I was at both semi finals but at the football in particular I remember saying to him, did we ever think we'd see the day that we'd be here in Croke Park watching our our, mm-hmm. our team you know competing? Mm-hmm. Um, as so, a, yeah. as somebody from Longford maybe yeah, it's something you that can relate can to that. Aspire to I think <laughs> the only time I've been in Croke Park has been for concerts and uh, hopefully that'll change in the future but. Um, no, that's that's cool. So it sounds like you had a good sense of where you wanted to go, even from leaving third time frame. Yeah, I'd say time. electronics and uh, electronics engineering. That you know, I remember uh, electronics or engineering was the thing at the time. But I, I don't, I don't know why that there would have been. I suppose engineering would have been probably associated with civil engineering back then. But of course, electronics was starting to 
starting to become a, a, a thing in the 70s when I was at school. I started in UCC in 1980 at 17 years of age. I was very young, actually, when I when I think of it. Now I, I have four, I have five children. My eldest two are graduated, and my next two after that are currently students. Mm. And I just think often about how young and immature. I mean, I was like a baby going off to mm. UCC um, on reflection, but I wasn't even particularly, you know, that young relative to other people in the class. There was one of my classmates, I think she was only 16 when we started mm. in October, turns, turned 17 in October, November or something like that. It was uh, too young, I think, mm. and I think it's much better these days. The extra year with the, you know, the fourth, the gap year between fourth and fifth, or before you start fourth. Yeah, I'm a big advocate of the transition. Transition year, yeah. Because I think the extra year's maturity alone is worth it, but Mm -hmm. also the opportunity (laughs) they get to do different things. I mean, my kids have done different things, like you know, debating and Mm. the school bank, and you know, the kind of dragon. They've they've a a competition in band and dragon, not dragons den, but Dragon's Cave or something like that, like an um, entrepreneurial type. Yeah, and it's you know it's it's just you know they get to you know do this slightly mock uh, business plan and present it. I think it's a fantastic mm. experience for the kids, you know. Yeah. So one of my daughters was in that, and they do goshka and different stuff, and I just think it's great because you have another year under your belt, another year's maturity, and much, and the years between say sixteen and twenty one, you know, they you make big steps. Yeah. In maturity, so every year along those, I think seven, eighteen. I think seventeen was way too young. Eighteen, even. Mm-hmm. I'd rather see kids being nineteen or even twenty before they start because they just have a more solid sense of themselves and probably a better idea of what they want to do with their lives. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. So UCC. Second. So UCC. Yeah, I came to UCC in nineteen eighty. I did an electrical engineering degree. Um. I spent four years there. I loved the place. Um, I, you know, would have been a uh, maybe slightly geeky kid, and but quite shy as a teenager. Um, you know, growing up where I did, and but I came to UCC, and you know, there was an awful lot of people there that I kind of felt were, you know, maybe more like me. You know, more kind of bookish or whatever, you know, mm. than maybe would have been the norm uh, in school, which I, you know, again, wouldn't have been that unusual at the time. But um, I really loved the place, you know. My parents were Cork, well, my father's people were, were Tipperary, but my mother's people were, you know, West Cork. And obviously I had, you know, connections and, and a graph of the place. And so, you know, Enjoy that enormously. I mean, some some years, I remember our third year in particular was, was very tough, you know, very demanding academically. And I found it tough, but I still enjoyed it a lot. I, you know, music was, you know, part of my uh, my interest. I was lucky to be in the UCC choir and the choral society. And they were very, we had a very good conductor at the time, Jeff Spratt, who, you know, we, we won the... I, I sang in a choir that won the international uh, festival. The international—I can't remember the exact title of it now—but the international, um, the choral festival, the car choral festival, we won the international, the top 
choir competition, and right. which was quite unusual at the time. So you know, I was again like I mean, I loved music. I still love music. Um, I'm, I was reasonably competent piano player back in the day, but I'm afraid I'm so out of practice now that I can barely play a scale. But mm. I still have a lot of fulfilment out of music, and you know, I'd have encouraged all my kids to. You know, to go and learn an instrument because I think there's a great discipline in it. You know, yeah. and again, learning how to do something and applying yourself—you know—it's something that every kid should would benefit from, in mm-hmm. my view. So, so I gave my four years. I played a little bit of football. I, I damaged my ankle in first year, and it kind of I was—I damaged it quite badly. So it kind of interrupted my aspiring career as a Gaelic footballer, and never really. Um, I never really made the mark I might have liked to have done. I probably didn't have the talent to anyway, but I gave my four years here, and I at the time I, I worked with a company, a Clonmel-based company called Kent's. They were probably called MF Kent back in the day, and they were an electrical and laterally electrical instrumentation and mechanical contractor, and eventually in time became a, a kind of a more engineering company, and I had... You know, won a studentship from them, which I was very grateful to them for. It was a, I suppose it was a full blown scholarship for, you know, Tipperary boys or girls. Or it was all boys, I suppose, at the time that did engineering. But and that was so. Did you work with them during the college? So I'd work with them during the summer. Right. Okay. Now um, I have to correct myself. There was one. The first, the first female engineer in Kent was um, a couple of years ahead of me in UCC. Um, and so I, 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 the great thing about it was I got a job during the summer mm-hmm. and I'd work in mostly Ahanish Illumina just outside Askeaton was being built at the time it was the biggest probably construction industrial construction project Ireland had ever seen and I used to get to work there during the summer mm-hmm. and well you know it was mainly kind of clerical and support work but it was still great to get a job it was great to get any job at the time yeah. because the 80s were a pretty grim time in Ireland but I used to get a job not only have a job but have a job in something that was relevant to my career and so, so during college was there part time job type stuff going no, on then you didn't have no I never I never did that was that even you know when I was in college in the late 90s I worked at McDonald's for yeah. two years and every time I talk about my first job, I'd always say that the stuff I learned in McDonald's stood to me massively throughout my career from yeah. a process perspective and managing kind of people and just, it was it was really stand out. But I guess... Yeah, I, my, well, I used to have summer jobs when I was a te- when I was a teenager, you know, I worked on my uncle's farm in West Cork, and I also, I picked strawberries and picked potatoes, and in fact, I had a summer job from when I was 11, you know, oh, and illegal, I had this, I don't know, it probably wasn't illegal at the time, but I, um, best job I ever had, I always tell people, was picking strawberries, I, they're friend, neighbours of ours in Mill Road and Skibbereen, the McCarthy's, and um, it was a great place for. I, I was actually one of the first. I think I was one of the one of the first group of of, of strawberry pickers, probably outside the McCarthy family. But it, you could eat as much as you liked, and you five a day and every oh, day. Yes. Yeah, yeah. and I and some people, you know, they tell me they hate strawberries after picking strawberries. Yeah. I could eat a bucket yeah. of them, 
I think they're the most delicious fruit ever. So yeah, yeah. I used to, you know, get up early. We, I go to Skib Rain for the summer holidays. I'd, I'd get up early, go pick my however many punnets of strawberries, get my money, and go. I'd go fishing then in the morning for sea trout and salmon and whatnot, and go to the beach in the afternoon. It was perfect. Wow. Out to Trigumna. Um, you know, I really had a very, I was very, very lucky with the kind of childhood that I had. And that was my first job, actually. And what I learned from that was, you know, I would have been kind of fairly competitive, I suppose, always, you know, I suppose from the sport. And I'd time myself and, you know, uh, try to pick so many punnets and, you know, make whatever target I had for my few pop of earning and save the money. And I was, you know, it was great because I had... You know, had money of my own. I didn't have to be asking my parents. We used to do a lot of babysitting as well. My family mm. were kind of the go-to babysitters because there was a lot of us there and there was nearly always one of us available. So, you know, I had those kind of jobs all the way. My mother's people were farmers. Um, so, you know, her sister was on one farm and brother was on another mm. farm just outside Skibreen so being close to farming would have been kind of a normal enough part of my upbringing too and I suppose I was kind of feel about farming the thing about farming that struck me was you know the variety in it and the kind of completeness of it and the kind of full circle of life you know and the different seasons and whatnot that farmers always had to be conscious of so they had to have the kind of full range of skills because it was a small business it was always a small business mm. and you had to have a bit of finance a bit of production a bit of planning a bit of seasonality um, you know being able to deal you know travel to the creamery and, and whatnot and all the different things that went mm. on and so like there's a work ethic I guess coming out even from an early age that you would have had and probably carried through yeah I mean I, I think I had a decent I think I still I hope I still do have a decent work ethic but again a lot of that would have come out of home the extended family mm. um, you know neither of my parents said it. you very rarely see either of them idle you know they yeah. were, two of them are very hard workers so yeah so I am kind of feel I'm losing my way no, no, here, so, so I, I was bringing you back sorry and because uh, I was just interested about jobs during college but you got the scholarship you were working with Kent's then yeah so I, college, so I came you know? out of, of, of I came out of college then and I and Kent's were getting into they had been like uh, you know an elect, elect, well you know before my time obviously I'd, I don't remember because I wasn't there but in the 70s 60s and 70s Okay, the, the Kent story is a fierce, interesting story in its own right. A company that was you're around. still around. Yeah, well, yeah. they're now part of um, a Canadian company called SNC Lavalin. They were sold sometime in the last couple of years. Uh, they're still. I'm not sure this brand is still there. I'm not entirely sure, you know, but I, I think they're kind of being subsumed now into SNC Lavalin. So the Kents that I would have known is probably probably no longer as you know standalone culturally anyway the story of Kent's is interesting they were fo- founded in 1919 as far as back I remember the dates because you know I used to I worked with Kent's for 10 years after I graduated and an awful lot of what I learned about business I learned there um, fierce interesting company very entrepreneurial company and there's a great sort of diaspora or um, alumni I suppose you'd say mm. 
uh, Kent's alumni have gone on, become, you know, to a greater or lesser extent, been successful in business, but a very strong kind of entrepreneurial uh, academy, right. not unlike Smurfit. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that- or GPA at the time in 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 the kind of so I was there from about eighty five to ninety five that was that that was the period my first job so I went to London first of all and I did a master's in London I was very fortunate to be able to do that and again Ken supported me in doing that I I did a master's in advanced control which would have you know fed into the 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 business that Ken's were kind of increasingly getting into at the time which was in, instrumentation and control. No, I probably took a bit of poetic license um, with the um, course I did there, and that it mightn't have been as, you know, perfectly relevant to, you know, the kind of hands-on instrumentation work that they'd have been doing. But I went to London in '84 to '85 very interesting great town I love, you know great city I, I, I really enjoyed my time I found it tough enough mm-hmm. uh, academically but I, mean, I muddled my way through it after some fashion and um, uh, went from there then to Kuwait so in London you were working for Kent in, in out of London I was I was studying full time full time it was a one year taught taught masters ok perfect um which I did in, in, you know, the opulence of, of South Kensington where a lot of the, you know, a lot of very expensive properties there and mm. on the edge of, just beside the Royal Albert Hall, it was Imperial College was where I attended, and, you know, through the museums mm. and all that stuff I walked through it every day, which, mm. you know, to a boy from Templemore, like, was mm. a pretty dramatic change. Mm. I know I'd been in Cork in between times, but Cork, Cork City is still relatively, even yeah. to this day, is... Uh, you know, it's a nice-sized city. You never really feel overwhelmed by the place, but London's a whole different story. And to me at the time, you know, I went over there at 21. Uh, enjoyed the experience. Found it tough enough, as I said, but i you know, very glad to have had the opportunity to go there. Irish perception in London at the time, how was that? Was it mixed or whatever? Um, yeah, Harrods had been bombed the year before only. Mm. You know, I think it was 84, 83, 84. I'm trying to remember now, but the previous Christmas to when I was there, Harrods had been bombed. Or maybe it was two Christmases. I mean, I'm not yeah, yeah. exactly sure. Uh, you know, I had an aunt who lived up in um, in North London. I'd go to see her sometimes. And, you know, you'd come across a little bit of anti-Irish... Uh, a little bit of hostility at times, but it was rare enough to be fair. Like, I always found the English to be very fair. And I, you know, mostly, anyway, I mean, obviously, there's a, they have their exceptions, like, like, like no more than Actually, any of us are perfect. Yeah. But um, I, it was not an easy time to be Irish in England, mm. you know. I mean, you still had a lot of, like, the... the Troubles in the north were still, you know, um, going on. It was the Thatcher years. You know, she had a particular view, um, which is a fairly diplomatic way of putting it. Mm. Um, you know, the miners' mining strike, strike was, you know, 
the aftermath of it was really there. And obviously, this was London, so it was a different story, you know, a different a different place. But mm-hmm. you know, it was it was um, not the easiest of times. I mean, that awful riot in Hazel was there during mm-hmm. my time, and I remember, you know, I went to a few soccer matches oh, yeah. um, up in. Um, up in White Hart Lane and I went to Highbury and different places and you know would have been accustomed to going to uh, matches in Ireland yeah. where there was never any sure trouble or whatever but I used to see that you know the culture. police would, would um, it was right in the middle of the, the probably one of the, the a part of the worst time of the hooliganism mm-hmm. and you know you, this wasn't I remember going to a match one night rather than studying and um, I remember just wishing I hadn't gone you know and it was actually Tottenham had a good team at the time Hoddle and and that gang they were Waddle. like yeah, yeah. I'm an Arsenal man so I'm probably yeah. more interested in yeah. about how many visits than they were yeah Arsenal <laughs> were kind of only all struggling a bit at the time it was the they were they were the post post Brady and Stapleton yeah. years. I remember I went to see Manchester United play Arsenal, and Stapleton was playing for Manchester. United. It was the year that they won ten in a row, and then famously ended up coming fourth in a two horse race as some unkind commentator. Right. I think that was the Atkinson years, but you know, um, oh, it wasn't. I mean, I you know I remember going up to. Highbury with my brother and sure, I didn't really care which side of the ground I just wanted to watch the match I didn't yeah, care yeah, yeah. I didn't really care who won yeah. just wanted to watch it and we went in with the Manchester United crowd and we kept it I didn't you know the naivety or two you, my brother Fergus was over in, for the summer and he we went to a couple of matches together and remember that particular day um just realising just because we were kept in afterwards I hadn't copped that yeah, yeah. you know that this would happen but um, and I mean nothing ever happened to me but I remember one day coming out of coming out of um, coming out of White Hart Lane after an, uh, they had played Real Madrid in a European game of some sort mm-hmm. and um you know, there was bottles flying around the place. Even, you know, the sports supporters were throwing them at their own people and there was a guy just a couple of yards ahead of me got hit in the back of the head by a oh. bottle on the way out and there was bottles breaking on the ground and I remember just thinking, yeah. you know, this is so alien to what uh, to what I'm accustomed to at matches where, mm-hmm. you know, all the supporters would mix together in the GA grounds, they'd mix together and there'd be a bit of banter yeah. and sometimes the odd bit of mild abuse, but... Taken, and they'd sit down yeah. together and swap sandwiches at half time, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. and discuss the match and get back to abusing each other for the second half. But there was never any uh, anything more than a bit of kind Just of a tension, I suppose. Yeah, the there was tension. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you know, I, I suppose look, it was all part of the experience. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what this has got to do with the one percent, but I mean, <laughs> but, it, um, but it's a learning. But uh, so you were there for a so I was there year for a year. Time, I went on then from there to Kuwait, where I gave oh. two years. And I remember the day I arrived. It was the day the Anglo Irish Agreement. I remember it really well because it was the day the date the Anglo Irish Agreement was signed, um, the fifteenth of November ninety five. And I remember I, I felt like a baby landing in this 85, place. Eighty five. Eighty five. What did sorry, I say? Yeah, 90, 90, 90, you're skipping ten years. Yeah. Of your life sorry. Eighty five. Eighty five. Nineteen eighty five. Um, and I could taste the, I could taste the kind of dust in the air and mm. the bit of humidity, 
and it was very warm or so I thought now of course I was to learn that that wasn't warm at all but so I worked my first job there was in an oil field out in the desert um, a place called Wafra which sort of came to prominence afterwards when the the Iraqis invaded they blew a lot of the wellheads here and you know remember the whole country was on fire where they had sabotaged the wellheads That, that was the first place they were on the Saudi border and that was the first act of, I suppose, ecological vandalism, you know, mm. was to burn, to set those things. And also, the, you might remember that they left oil off into the Gulf. I worked in that refinery as well. And, you know, I suppose the work itself was kind of only moderately challenging, but in in that, you know, it was maintenance and it was kind of upgrade of quite old... Um, Wafra in particular was very old technology, it was all pneumatic control technology, which was interesting. I mean, I don't regret working there because I mm. learned about the principles of, you know, force balance. And, you know, I actually think in many respects, the engineering and technology back in the day before, you know, digitization came mm-hmm. along, because digitization has offered, you know, it kind of cures a lot of ills in a sense, mm. you know, um, in terms of what you can do. But back then, you kind of had to probably know your craft a little bit better. Mm. I would argue, anyway, in some regards. Um, and that was interesting because I learned a lot about control systems in a, in a kind of a very real sense, you know, because it was all, you know, if we didn't do our job, the oil didn't come out of the ground and, you know, uh, compressors shut down and turbines shut down and there was no power mm. and the power was used to, there were underground uh, sub- submersible electric pumps, you know, buried, you know, several hundred metres below the surface and different, you know, different types of uh, substrata there. So I learned a bit about the oil industry. I learned a bit about, you know, uh, gas oil separation and refining and gas scrubbing and different stuff like that, which was kind of more process engineering not my chosen um, kind of profession if or mm. discipline if you like but still you know what I was to learn about instrumentation and control is that you very quickly had to learn what the process was now that kind of would have had a resonance for me later on in my career mm. when I went to you know you were managing business processes mm. you have to really have a good appreciation of the process and, and understand that anybody in IT should really get that. I mean, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people don't always don't always get that. But the process is probably process is the most important thing. The technology used to automate and speed it and mm-hmm. aggra- uh, amalgamate and aggregate and all those things is actually secondary. Mm-hmm. The process is the first thing. Yeah. What What did you learn about you as a kind of this massive change in culture? I guess yeah. in the environment from Ireland to London, which probably wasn't a seismic shift, but no, London, my, the class I was in in London was very international, but it was still a similar kind of milieu, if you like, of classrooms and students. And we were all, you know, reasonably alike because we were all trying to pass exams and mm-hmm. get our projects done and whatnot. And while the cosmopolitan par, uh, aspect of London was, was, was new to me, but still, you know, it was a similar... There wasn't that dramatic culture shift, but when I went to Kuwait... Did you go on your own? Was there other Irish going yeah, on that you were... Well, nobody I knew. Okay. 
Um, I don't think I knew anybody. I remember there was a guy I went out, I happened to be on the same plane as him, John May. I knew him, I'd kind of come across him, but I didn't really know him in any real sense. Mm-hmm. He was a bit older than me, a bit senior to me, but um, I don't actually believe I knew anybody out there. I was very lonely. I mean, I mm-hmm. really found it very difficult. My first Christmas I was out there and I just felt, you know, and, and you know, there was a tragedy in the family um, shortly after I... I, I went out there and I remember feeling when I got news of my 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 young cousin had been had been killed in a in a in a traffic accident and I remember feeling so utterly isolated and alone. Um, you know that's one of the one of the things that really stands out for me. Like she was only she was six, I think five or six, yeah. only only a small innocent, gorgeous kid that she was, but. Um, I learned. I, I I found it very tough in the beginning. Mm. Not the very first couple of weeks because we had, you know, we had. A, I remember I was there a day or two, and somebody came and asked me, "Did you did I play did I play soccer?" And I said, "Yeah, I do." Grand, you're playing tonight, so right. we went off and we played a match. And I suppose sport was always a good. And you know, yeah. I, I they hadn't won a game since forever, and I I I, I was knocked mm-hmm. over for two penalties, and mm-hmm. I scored the two of them. We drew it two all, so that was a oh, big good. big triumph. And a good start, but good book straight away there. Um, you know, you were playing on sand, and it was. Uh, I have a kind of an interesting story about that later on, but uh, which I'll okay. get to. But, right. um, but so I worked with a guy who had arrived around the same time as me. He was a Scottish guy, and we used to head off every day out into the into the desert and. We'd drive for about an hour out to this place and we'd listen to the BBC World Service, which, of course, would be for the news at, you know, seven. I think we used to start at seven in the morning. And, of course, it would be jammed. And I'd never experienced this kind of well, stuff before. The, the, the signal? Yeah, the okay. signal would be jammed. And um, so you wouldn't really hear the news or to be different. Diff- you know, you'd, you'd sometimes hear the jamming mightn't be that successful, but, you know, BBC World Service was a big, was an mm. important thing to us at the time because mm. there was a lot of trouble in um, the Lebanon in particular. But, yeah, so I, what I learned about, what I've learned from Wafra, I mean, I was working a completely, I mean, I said I was in a cosmopolitan milieu in London, but, I mean, this mm. is, like, completely different. These were guys, you know, there was... The the tea boys, the raw boys. Um, you know, I don't I don't remember ever meeting a woman in Wafra. Mm. Uh, there were, I don't think there were any women working in the in the facility itself. Um, you'd see women in the village, obviously covered from head to toe, very conservative, very um, completely different. I mean, you know, Ireland was a pretty conservative place at the time, but women. Yeah. I mean, okay, this is my my statement now would be open to challenge by a lot of people, but women generally had you know they didn't have to wear makeup and they didn't have to wear uh, long dresses and they did mm. you know they could hold jobs. Now I know there was a long journey to travel at that stage too, mm. in 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 terms of equality, and some might argue still still to go, but. Um, I was there and I was working with Pakistanis and Indians and Palestinians and um, Bangladeshis and Filipinos and all these kind of nations. I'd never had met these kind of people mm. before. And, you know, learned a lot about just the different cultures. Yeah. You know, some, you know, dramatically obvious hab- habits like, you know, the caste system in India would have, would have been 
quite a, a sort of a, a quite a, quite a, a presence in 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 the sort of lives of the a lot of Indian engineers and technicians. I got to know um, very good very good technically an awful lot of them mm. both in Wafra and the oil field and in the refinery where I moved to then kind of from my second year when I was there for my second year the refinery was a much more uh, modern control equipment but ironically we were less busy because things didn't break down things broke down all the time in Wafra because very old technology and we were you know maintaining the old stuff keeping it working and then designing for an upgrade and um, so Wafra was kind of I was busier but I wasn't very busy in, in the in the refinery. But at the same time, you know, it was a much bigger, it's mm. like a half million barrel a day um, facility. I worked in the gas plant, and there was you know, so there was refining, there was gas trains, there was utilities. You know, I learned a lot about the kind of process, the safety side of it, because obviously the all work permits was all live maintenance. So, mm. you know, long periods of boredom, which would be one thing that I found very difficult. I mean, I to, you know, you, your work would be done at lunchtime and you mm. were just twiddling your thumbs for the rest of the day, which I just, mm. just think was an awful, desperate waste. But, you know, yeah. like somebody, my uncle said to me years afterwards um, about, I suppose he was another person who was an influence on me, Sean, Sean Hennessy was my my uncle by marriage, and he was he was a marine engineer. But he he worked in the refinery in Whitegate years afterwards, and he was a great you know a guy with a very good work ethic. But he said to me one time, you know, the thinking in the oil industry is if it if it takes a quarter of an hour, you take two hours because the inquiry will take two years. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of learned to slow things down and you know, the hot work permits and the cold work permits and all that kind of process that I did never learned that at university, yeah, uh, yeah. the kind of working methods and the hierarchy. And, you know, it's a very hierarchical, very hierarchical structures out there. A lot of people not working particularly hard, mm. but the margins in the oil business, even then when the price of oil was as low as nine or 10 barrel, nine or 10 dollars a barrel. Mm. Now this is the eighties, obviously. Um, but the cost of getting oil out of the ground in Wafra was only like a dollar a barrel so mm. like you know there was huge margins now the oil fields in the Middle East would be you know quite easy to extract just below the surface a lot of them at the time and I'm not sure what it's like these days but um, so yeah I mean I kind of feel I'm repeating myself a little bit at this stage but, the, but like it was, a, it was the, what a two year stint two years yeah the heat course was a big thing in the summer Mm -hmm. and the danger of working in the heat and the sandstorms were just Mm -hmm. you know when we were you know they were they had to be experienced to be believed I mean you see these things in in Lawrence of Arabia and you kind of think they're making it up but actually it's worse than that you know the sandstorms were terrifying at times I do remember um, a New Year's Eve there was a breakdown on in the in 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 Wafa, there were two gas compressors and three gas turbines which drove the electricity generating. There was no grid out there. Mm-hmm. So, because that would be often the case with these remote uh, oil fields that they were really completely self-contained. So the gas and oil would come out of the ground. The gas would be sent to power the, uh, effectively to power the um, turbines which then drove the generators which then provided the 
power for the extended site. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a lot of driving around in the desert and lizards and, you know, a bit of calfling and, you know, different stuff. I remember one particular incident with a lizard because they'd run in under the pickup truck and there were these big, huge, ugly things, mm-hmm. you know, about maybe three foot long. And I remember some of the lads brought one in. in I was... I suppose we did, I was only 22 at the time, so you wouldn't have thought much about the cruelty of it, but they brought the lizard in, put him into a fold-up, uh, you know, those old-style uh, toolboxes with a kind of concertina mm. kind of thing, and they sit him down into the lower, clear, cleared out the lower deck of it and put him in. And, of course, when somebody would come into the workshop, they'd ask, go get a, you know, a it's wrench or a scooter or whatever, and he'd open, and this... Lizard would jump and it was um, pretty fierce. But um, was it a dry country from a boozing perspective? Yes, it was. Yeah, you could. Well, that just really wasn't on the cards. I mean, yeah. there would have been some kind of maybe a blind eye within in the European camps, if you like. But you know, it was essentially you couldn't go and buy drink anywhere. Yeah. Um, it was strange in that I mean I had a drinker so it, it didn't really you know not being able to get a drink I, wasn't, uh, a big deal, wasn't really like, yeah. anything yeah. to me but um, at the same time you had a totally different kind of a social life mm. you know you sort of visited people and you know you went to the beach at the weekends and it was always sunny and you yeah. know I did a bit of I learned to windsurf I did a little bit of fishing there but the fishing was only only very average. It was sea fishing, which I didn't know an awful lot about. But right. so I would have known there were some, some. You know, very few women. You know, um, there were some teaching and some mm-hmm. nurses, but we were a big group of males. Uh, the only women that were there in the in the camp were some. Um, there were some married quarters in the camp, so obviously the the. There was a number of Irish women in, in you know, Irish wives and mothers, I suppose. None of, none of them worked, if I remember correctly. I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying that. They probably wouldn't have got work permits. Mm. It was difficult for... Like, you know, it was a difficult place to be a woman. You know, there's no question about it. Mm. Um, I was there as a single man, so, you know, I was there for a couple of years. I was a young, young guy, and, you know, just... I, I had a few a few women friends but not not very many but mm. it was a very kind of a strange social life you know completely different to what I'd have been accustomed to at home and it was lonely I found it tough I mean I was very young when I went out there 22 young, yeah. um, but I did what I learned from it I suppose more than anything I learned that I could get through it and survive and be okay and mm. I felt after this that I could go anywhere yeah Next was on to Luxembourg, where I worked for six months in a plant that we were we were we had some construction and commissioning work for a Dupont, mm-hmm. um, who were making a new a new factory within the within the complex. They're making Tyvek, which is kind of a which was some kind of a, a synthetic um, polyolefin product on which they printed maps at the time they were it was almost unterrible paper if you like mm. and that was very interesting because very very automated uh, you know everything was highly automated um, the, from the you know automated warehousing to automated moving of the rolls of paper on the floor and automated guided vehicles and 
everything automated to the last, which was quite different to what I'd come from mm. and a very different kind of a process. Uh, what I learned there, I suppose, I was kind of reintegrating into European society to some extent. Mm. And it did take me a little bit of time, and that wouldn't be uncommon. Mm. Um, but I wasn't there a real long time. I, I, what I learned there, actually, I was, was about the, that a very... DuPont had a ferocity about safety. Right. You know, almost almost zealous. Tree, if if that's not the wrong word, but what I learned from watching the way they did that was that actually a lot of the principles of safety were are just about being organised and tidy and you know kind of measured and structured about what you do, and actually it contributes to um, a lot of people say you know we can't afford all these structures for safety, but sure most of them are just common sense. Yeah. You know, don't leave stuff lying around. That's not a you know yeah, that yeah. aids your productivity. Think about what you're doing, wear pro- proper, you know, protective equipment. You know, I'd never seen anything like it before, but, you know, they had a safety record, something like 68 times the industry average, which was extraordinary, you know. So they really had a respect for human life and human health and, you know, property damage and whatnot that I never saw anywhere before. The second thing that I learned from them was they had this concept of turnover packages. So you, obviously, in your you know your your um, particular discipline of project management mm-hmm. um, you know back then kind of pretty much everything was still done on paper PCs were really only coming into the workplace at the time mm-hmm. uh, the, certainly the big you know project management software like you know Primavera mm-hmm. and yeah, yeah. Artemis and all these different ones that you kind of don't hear about so much anymore but they well I think I think um, Oracle own um, Primavera I worked with different ones of them yeah. over the years later on but they, none of those were really around because the machinery wasn't there to run them on mm-hmm. the software the machinery was only arriving the hardware was only really arriving people were only just getting used to the idea you had spreadsheets really and a few databases but that was all the bigger systems but so most of the planning was done kind of by hand and critical path analysis was there to some extent but mm-hmm. you know they were all big plans done back in engineering offices yeah. but they didn't really survive you know mm-hmm. um, so the way DuPont kind of worked around that was the, this idea of creating turnover packages so obviously at a high level they'd, they'd, they'd you know you would turn over a piece of the plant so that the next piece could be mm. turned over and, and so on in a, so like shorter cycles of actually yeah, delivering so like something yeah beginning with the end in mind and kind of working your way back from there mm. and that was the first time I'd seen that really you know, and that's something I carried with me to this day. I still see an awful lot of very poor project managers around the place. Basics mm. missing, mm. you know, a lack of thought really about the end. Like, that's the big thing I learned from the DuPont experience was... I suppose I learned two things. I learned I learned about this idea... Well, I learned three distinct things. One was about how to go about setting up a proper safety structure. Right. The second was their kind of advanced thinking on project planning. And the third thing that I discovered was just how much the Americans love the Irish, you know, right. because even though they were very hard on us in the beginning, mm-hmm. but there was a lot of a lot of Irish names among the you know as you see all over the place in tech and engineering yeah. and whatnot, very strong affinity. I mean, I do think the Irish have a very good work ethic, in a good way, a very good work ethic. 
a kind of an ingrained work ethic and also an ability to get on with people, which, yeah. is, which is, I would have never really fully understood just how important that, that is or was. Mm-hmm. But we, they did like us, you know, yeah. and they could relate to us, I suppose, they were from a similar culture and, you know, we had an ability to relate to them and talk to them and make them feel okay about stuff mm-hmm. and, you know, get work done while I having think, fun, you know. I think my experience from project management from, from an Irish person's perspective is they have that perfect mix of being able to have the chat have a bit of banter get people on side but still as you said execute and get the job done and I think it's almost a unique mix that we have more than any other country yeah. uh, from a PM perspective that I've, I've experienced so yeah it's interesting we're, we're lucky in that respect like. yeah so that was my time in Luxembourg and I kind of I gave about six months there and then I moved up to this is with Kent's all the time right I moved up to Holland where the kind of European headquarters was a place a lovely town called Delft and I had a project then in a town called Gael in Belgium which is North Belgium it was about maybe I don't know three hours drive between the two if I remember correctly and so that was the first project I managed so you were getting more into a PM type yeah. mindset at this stage so um I don't know what my title was, but I'd probably called project engineer, but it was effectively the project manager. So mm-hmm. I, you know, it was a PLC job and an integration job, and there was hardware on in the. It was a it was a banding and packaging line for steel coils in a in a steel preparation facility. Um, a lot of the steel went down to the auto industry. So you can see, I was in you know, I was in oil and gas. I was in polyolefins, and now I'm in petrochemicals. You could probably call that, and then. I was here in, in, in a quite different industry again, steel, steel kind of package, steel preparation, I suppose. Um, and that job went on for about a year and a half. And again, you know, I learned an awful lot there. I mean, new technology, I learned a lot there about about PLCs and how to program them. And uh, we did some, you know, and I think back then now some crazy kind of communication protocols from first principles, and you know, there was Cobol. There was a there was a guy on site who was a Cobol um, expert, and he wanted us to do everything in Cobol. And when I think back on it now, we agreed, and I don't know what possessed us to agree, but you know, mm. the level of knowledge because he knew when he felt he'd be able to. Right. He he knew Cobol, but he knew Cobol in the mainframe. Mm. Uh, IBM mainframe kind of a yes, context and this was uh, something completely different but you know eventually we got the thing running we got the line running in in in, in an automatic you know um, what, what am I trying to say the line ran automatically or semi-automatically it was a tough job because we lost a man he was he was killed in an oh. industrial accident and you know I'd, I'd feel a certain kind of uh, regret to this day when I think about him he was a young guy he was an Irish guy um, 22 years of age with, with a young with a young baby you know um, and I remember he rang me one day I was I was in the office in Holland and he was on site and they were running you had a crew of electricians and he was running them and he, he, we had this job to do and he was trying to explain to me how he, you know it was dang- we knew it was dangerous and he he I had asked him to go and look walk walk the route the cable mm. route and so it was a data cable that was running right across the the factory from where the 
equipment that we were controlling was back to the back to the offices and he was trying to explain to me I just couldn't follow it and I asked him look my boss was going down the following week and I said look you know just I don't want you to do anything except think mm-hmm. about how you're going to do it and show him and we'll decide then what's the safest way of doing it and but when my boss went down the following week he was showing him and walking the route and there was there was this accident and he was killed more or less instantly total freak accident was it or it wasn't a total freak there was a there were there were steps welded onto the side of a of a crane that shouldn't have been welded onto it right. uh, by the by the plant people to help mm. them stand up on it and climb into the crane right. and he was caught between that and, and some kind of a vertical uh, upright and he was caught and cut and you know bled really to death mm. in, in seconds and and it was um, very difficult um, obviously very difficult for his family but difficult mm. to, for those of us that felt kind of you know I do feel some you know regret that I hadn't said something different to him I don't know yeah, if, yeah, I don't yeah. know if, if it would have made any difference but anyway you know uh, what sort of impact do you think it had uh, did it have an impact on you afterwards or is it uh, I, I would have been I know I talked about the safety consciousness that DuPont had but I would mm. have had a really personal um, zeal about it afterwards mm. ever after in my in my life I would have would have been the first thing out of my mouth whenever I was setting up you know a team or a person to go mm. doing a job I would have been look you know you need this is the f-. and I'd tell them the story and mm. you know hope that they would then Think twice, you know, I guess. Think twice, know. and when, when we, you know, when we started, when I started my own business, then we we engaged this lady, Mary Darlington. She came and um, you know set up the set up the systems and did some, you know, the training and whatnot. And I would have, you know, always tried our level best. No, we were never really in that kind of a dangerous um, environment in in my time in business. Mm. Um, but nonetheless, you know, you mm. could get killed crossing the road. Absolutely, yeah. You know, uh, the simplest of things are nearly always the worst, um, the worst of accidents. Yeah. So the other thing I learned from that job was a lot of hostility, contractual hostility on that job. Obviously, much lower ranking learning, if you like. But I learned on that job the value of formal documentation of problems. Because um, you know the job was there was a you know the job was priced a particular way there was there was mm. conflict between the the plant owner the main contractor who we were reporting into and ourselves and a lot of the equipment that had been bought and put on the the production line was very was cheap and nasty and flawed and of course the control system would stop working because of proximity switch that we hadn't supplied or installed, mm-hmm. you know, had been knocked out of its moorings. And, of mm-hmm. course, the software wasn't working. Yeah. wasn't the software that wasn't working. The software was actually doing what it was supposed to do, which is if the if the signal is missing, go into fail-safe. And, you know, there was... Uh, we kind of got caught in the crossfire a little bit. I mean, I, I told you the story... Whenever we did our um, PMI event, our PMI event, mm. I told you the story about this this guy who. <laughs> I was going to bring that one up later, Amoeba. but yeah, do it. Yeah. Um, but Amoeba was, you know, uh, hopefully he's not listening to this. Hopefully he's not. 
I don't remember his second name now. That's a long time ago. It was 1988 or so. Mm. So it's a lot of water under the bridge since then. But you know, I I told you about the conflict I had with him and how I I didn't set out to humiliate him, but I did actually humiliate him in a fit of temper mm. at a meeting where he had accused me of something that I felt was very unfair, and I. I relate the story about how I pursued him and and demanded a retraction and you know and how I how I paid for it ten times over in the in the months that followed on the, on the project because every time I made a mistake he had me mm-hmm. really uh, um, and made me suffer and I probably deserved it actually mm-hmm. because I I really did treat him with disrespect I. I protest I didn't set out to do that, yeah. but that's what I... I mean, I was 24 or 25, and, you know, the things you do when you're 24 or 25, you don't do when you're mm. well, it's 10 or 20 years It's an experience older, thing, and it's an ego thing, maybe, and it's just yeah. inexperienced. Well, losing, <laughs> losing the temper, I suppose, is a thing that, you know, I do occasionally. Mm. Um, I, I, I suppose I have a personality type that, reacts to like everybody has reacts to particular stimuli and I'd be no different except that you know I I, I usually would be pretty level headed and calm but I, I'm capable of losing my temper the same as everybody else and when I do I don't you know the red mist descends and I <clears throat> say and do things that I've never it's never yeah. uh, it's never been a good idea ever in my life when I've lost my temper that I've actually said you know what that was a good idea I did better out of that because I lost my temper, you know. Just on that, I guess it's a good time to bring it up, but one of the things I've learned from a lot of podcasts, listening to people going through their life stories and how they've been able to not react or so, what tools or techniques they might have used. Is there anything specific now that if you can find yourself coming to a blow-off point, anything that you do differently over over the years that reduces the amount of times it happens yeah. or how you, how you manage it? You know, that's a very provocative question now that I'm thinking, I'm trying to think if I actually learned myself. I'm not entirely sure that I have, actually. I mean, I still, I, I, you know, as you grow older, you've seen most stuff before. That's one of the great advantages. Of, there's very few real advantages to getting older, but mm-hmm. one of them is experience. And experience is, you know, a collection of uh, Oscar Wilde, uh, allegedly, is what experience is what we call our mistakes. But, mm. I, I, I mean, it is that, you know. Uh, I know it's a witticism, but there's a lot of wisdom in it. And, and so when you get older, I mean, I'm in my 50s now, and I've seen probably most things that I see now I've seen before in yeah. some shape or form. And I am a bit of a thinker, so I would, you know, think afterwards, well, I didn't handle that very well, how would I do it? Mm. different the next time so just experience alone gives you you know all these reference points from which you had done things well or bad you know I think about I did that well and I should do that again or Mm. I did that badly and I should do something different do you almost see it coming so as you said circumstances repeat not identically but if you can almost see things aligning that this is going to be a trigger point for me it gives you that one second advantage before before you actually react. Yeah, I, I think there's a certain amount of that. I think I think you certainly I'd have a I'd have a I'd have a good nose for trouble. You know that that has improved over the years, and, right. and I, I guess that's some subconscious kind yeah. of reference back to your experience. But uh, 
I do, and even, you know, in relatively recent years in business, you know, the conflicts are, are a different type of a conflict. Mm. I mean, when I started in business, you know, one of the things that I've gotten right more, far more often than I've gotten wrong is I have good instinct about people, and I, I'm very careful about the people that I hire. I'm very, I almost always hire for character and train for skill. I know mm-hmm. it's a bit of a cliche, yeah. but it's one that I believe firmly in. Um, if somebody feels wrong, you know, they generally don't get in. No, mm-hmm. some people are good at masking it, and sometimes people with the best will in the world, they don't. There's no lack of integrity or lack of intent on their part, but they just don't fit. Mm. And when that happens, you know, I, I, there's very little to be gained for anyone in the person staying in either in the team or in mm. the company. Um, but mostly I've, I've gotten that right. But but in when you kind of go into bit the business end of it, you know, shareholding, sort of uh, ownership uh, issues and, you know, incentive issues and stuff like that, you, you, you do see a different side of people. And I think it brings... Uh, business in particular can be, you know, pretty unethical at times, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and I've seen that happen a number of times, um, regrettably. Mm-hmm. Uh, with people I trusted, didn't really see it coming. And I wouldn't have, obviously, maybe you don't see the same, inst- see the same instinct uh, kind of running when the stakes are a little bit higher than mm. in the kind of normal uh, work that people do in their everyday lives mm. you know because I do find that you know 95% of people I've come across over the years have been decent and honourable mm. you know one of the one of the things I feel about HR you know and I, I believe in structure and process I do if you want to grow any business you've mm. got to have structure and process and without it you'll reach a glass ceiling pretty quickly mm-hmm. some people have a some people have naturally a, a glass ceiling that's set higher than others based on their own yeah. innate ability. But without structure and process, without it crippling the business or crippling innovation out of it, obviously is, a, is, is something that happens in a lot of places. But yeah. without it, you won't go anywhere very far. And HR, a lot of the HR is kind of predicated on the notion that 95% of people are out to screw you. And in fact... It's really only about five people, five percent of people that are out to screw you. That's my experience, right. you know. And that, and I'm, I'm saying that now as somebody who's put, put a lot of work in over the years to HR process and mm. you know letters of appointment and proper structures and mm. you know benefits and all that kind of stuff and you know procedures for when there's conflict or warnings or you know the usual there's the stuff that happens when when things go wrong with an employee with an employment. Right. But you know. I did reflect on that in the last couple of years that it's the complete wrong way around because actually 95% of HR, now again HR practitioners will probably disagree with me but and maybe it's different in the multinationals but generally speaking I find that that's the assumption that people are inherently bad and they're out to get you and not that people are inherently bad but the 5% who are bad are going to try and screw you and the and so the rules are kind of written around those 5% not screwing in. And in fact, they should be written around the 95% of people who are good and decent and you want to empower them to go and do what it is mm. that they do best. Because the 5% will screw you anyway if you don't follow the letter of the law in your process. And, and that's actually a very difficult thing to do because, you know, you're getting on your daily lives and you're, not, you're assuming people are decent. And I just think there's a, bit of a, there's a bit of a kind of a paradox or an irony in that in that side of things mm. but 
to go back, like you asked me, did I? I haven't really answered your question properly. <laughs> You've answered is, a few other questions, so that's yeah, good. Like, no, that's but, a good that's thing. Yeah. But, but to answer the question, but have I actually developed a way? Yeah. I do know when I have. A, a, a hostile or a difficult meeting coming up that I do a lot of preparation mm-hmm. and whenever I do I never have a difficult meeting I always have a difficult meeting when I haven't seen it coming mm. um, and would you go through almost role play of what preemptive what questions might come up well, how, how do you kind of well, I, I use I mean here's a tool that I use I went years ago to the car communications like I'm not already able to talk enough, you know. But um, but you're I, doing all right. I, I went, think we're at one hour seven or there, so that's um, good. So, and the guy he was he was the chief executive of um, the C, the FAI the time of the time of the Lansdowne Road riots. You remember when the English fan, we're back to writing again, but I can't remember his name now. But he he gave me this. Page and he said, "Look, whenever you're going into an interview, there's four things you should. There's a four columns, and I've used this over and over, and I advise people on this all the time. So right. the first column is, what are you trying to get across? And the second column is, how do you? And there should be no more than three or four. And I don't know if this is what he said to me, but my own view is there should this be no more. This is an more in- than, interview environment, or kind of yeah, used in, in well, any kind his, of his. Well, exactly. That's the point. Because right. his his advice to me was in the context of an interview environment. But I went on and took it from there, and I apply it actually to, especially to any kind of a meeting, whether it's a sales meeting or a contract negotiation meeting or whatever it is. I would say, line up what it is you're trying to achieve, three or four points. What what are the points that you're trying to get across? It's like your objective. That yeah. you, you don't want to leave this meeting unless you get this out of it. Or so I'm doing this interview with you, and I want yeah. people to think that I'm you know, handsome. Well, of course, it's a radio interview. Face so, for radio. I think we both you know. have that. <laughs> but, you know, the four things I want people to remember about me, which, of course, I haven't done in preparation for tonight. Otherwise, we would have been finished half an hour ago. And then on each of those... Each of those then, how? what's the story to make it stick? How do you make the people remember what it is you're trying to get them to remember? You know, is there a story, an anecdote that says, well, you know, um, I'm really hardworking. You know, my anecdote is I used to pick strawberries when I was 11 years of age and pick potatoes and I, you know, whatever it is. You know, mm. you, there's some little anecdote. Usually people like stories. Yeah. And then on the third column, it's what are the awkward questions you're going to be asked? Mm-hmm. And on the fourth column is how do you deal with those? How do you answer those? And I have taken that. If I was going into a meeting that I felt was going to be difficult, I take some variant of that four column. You know, one sheet. Is it a grid yeah, like it's it just yeah. a grid, and I say, and and so let me kind of go through. And sometimes, if I was doing a presentation, I take the yeah, same thing. Yeah. What am I trying to get across? And I trace back to the to the slides or whatever, or yeah. to the pictures. Now I've kind of gone off slides and death by PowerPoint has has become a real issue in recent times but mm. I just find it very useful It's that's yeah. a tip that I definitely cool. would impart that could be the 1% straight it could be you know, you know so but and, 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 and what I find then is that if you're in a situation where you're where there's conflict you just okay you've thought a little bit about it you thought this is how I'm going to handle it I mean sometimes I do it and I do it really well sometimes I just don't do it really well at all it depends on the person at the other side of the deal because you know if you have if you have somebody that you're dealing with that's decent and reasonable, you're never going to have that difficult of yeah, meeting. Yeah, yeah. You're not going to lose your temper anyway. I find when I'm dealing with... I kind of go off 
off the wall when I'm dealing with people that won't well of course this is my opinion uh, they would say I'm sure a lot of but when I feel like somebody is no the rational a lot of people are feelers rather than thinkers if you go to the kind of personality profile mm. which I am a fan of not you know in a really rigid way but I think they offer you some kind of an insight into the kind of people you're dealing with and if you can where I do well in this kind of a situation is where I think ahead about what kind of a person am I dealing with here? Mm. Are they an introvert, an extrovert? Are they a thinker? Are they a feeler? I mean, you, you don't have to Briggs go... sort of... Yeah, kind of a, a, a dumbed-down version of Myers-Briggs. You can you can just do the four quadrants, mm-hmm. you know, the blue, red, green, and yellow. Yeah, um, as well, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and there's variance of that around. But And if I think, right, well he or she is such and such and and usually they don't usually you're not blue or red you're blue i mean i would be blue normally mm. i'd be marginally like, like a dominant one might be you tend to there's a dominant yeah the dom, my one. dominant quadrant in that particular matrix would be blue i'm an introvert mm. and and i'm a thinker rather than a feeler and that's not to say i never feel but mm. i on in stress i'm red you know i'm mm. still I'm, i go extrovert mm-hmm but I'm still a thinker and um, and I think everybody you know so if I can stop and think about somebody when they're they're done because a lot of people are good at masquerading as a you know green masquerading as a red or versa or, or vice versa um, but when you're under stress then you, you kind of change at least that's my my belief on the thing and if you can actually think ahead of it what kind of person am I dealing with and what kind of conflict is likely to come up and, I'm, and here's what he'll say or she'll say, and I'm going to have some kind of path away from that particular, mm-hmm. you know, kind of thorny issue. When I do that, I do fine. Mm-hmm. When I walk into it unprepared, things can kind of go off the rails for me. And mm-hmm. once they go off the rails, it's very difficult to get, I think anybody would find it difficult to get back to the kind of, the cam, because, you know, the cam is where most, problems are resolved yeah, yeah, yeah they're certainly not resolved when you lose your temper mm. I know it's a very well, long no, it's, answer it's good well look at it unearthed that model and that's something good yeah. to, to know but um hey folks you got to the end of another show thank you for persisting I hope you enjoyed it as much as the others So I'm just going to put a quick shout out for feedback. You can get in touch with me through the site. You can get in touch through Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. It's all on the robofthegreen.ie site and you can take it from there. Also, I'd love if you listen to on iTunes, leave a comment, give us a score out of five on the stars that are so much commonplace these days. I would really appreciate that if you did it. Whether it's good or bad, I can certainly take that. We'll, we'll make some improvements as we go. And yeah, I, I'll keep it short. I hope you enjoyed and I look forward to having you back for some more 1% Better podcasts in the future. Thank you and good luck. <laughs>